What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stanglin. Uh, my guest today's show is an amazing musician, singer, songwriter, who's part of such bands as Motley Crue, The Scream, Union, and Rat, just to name a few. He's a, currently a solo artist, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about his new music he's writing and releasing. Welcome to the show, Mr. John Crabby. How are you doing today, sir? All right, buddy. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, as a fellow musician, I'm always curious about how people get started playing music. Who is your gateway band that made you want to pick up the guitar? And uh, to be honest with you, was the guitar your first instrument that you picked up? Yes. Um, I was probably like everybody else my age. Um, I got into them late. Um but I just remember, I, I don't, it was like an Ed Sullivan special. Um, and they literally did some sort of a special on the Beatles. And it, it showed them in the beginning, in the middle, and then the end. And it was like all these performances that they had done, I believe on the Ed Sullivan show, whether they were live or videotaped. Um, and I was just sitting there like, wow. And I saw the excitement in the audience and just the whole bit. And then for some apparent reason, I don't know why my parents did it. I don't recall asking them for a guitar, but I got, I went, came down Christmas morning and nice. underneath the tree was like this triangular box. And I opened it up and it was a brand new, Sears Silvertone acoustic guitar. <laughs> That's awesome. With and, action, and, that was probably super high, uh, right? <laughs> well, I I don't really remember now. I I know it was like a tobacco burst guitar with a white pickguard, and it had like this red and white twine rope that you, <laughs> like you put around the you know one of the tuning pegs and the button on the back, and yep, it was horrible. But it you know what it that was my first instrument and I started taking lessons but I took them at school and I went to a Catholic school so I was taking lessons from a fucking nun uh, <laughs> sister Charles Bronson that was brutal with a ruler um and I was taking these lessons but I was I really got discouraged because all they were teaching me was like kumbaya Michael rowed the boat ashore, yeah, you know, yeah. and I'm like, oh, this blows. And then a neighbor across the street, th th this girl that was the same age as me, we used to play ball and shit together. She got a guitar. And she started whipping out like shit like Scarborough Fair by Simon and Garfunkel and like Bob Dylan. And I'm like, I got pissed. I'm like, what? How the fuck? Like, I got my guitar first. How are you so much better than me? Like, she was playing chords the whole bit. Right, right. And I was like, uh-uh, no, this, no, forget it. And I just started woodshedding in my room. I finally got a guitar teacher that kind of, you know, taught me a little bit of reading. Like, I could read notes. I know what they are. And I know what their time signatures are, but I, if you put a chart in front of me, I wouldn't be able to read it. Like I have to sit and figure it out. Right. But, um, like he was teaching me really fundamental stuff. And, 
but he was breaking shit down. Like he was teaching me stuff like, Hey Jude and Lady Madonna. And I was like, Oh, killer. Then that piqued my interest. And then I, I, I just, I, I just remember being in a, my Catholic school had a talent show and I somehow got involved with this band and we did a talent show and we, in some weird freak thing, I, I can't remember for the life of me um, if one of the guys was not permitted to do the show or somebody got stage right. But we had worked up House of the Rising Sun by the Animals mm-hmm. and uh, I'm Not Your Stepping Stone by the Monkeys. Okay. And curtain opens and nobody's singing. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, I got this. And I just walked up to the mic and I started singing, playing the guitar, and we won. Nice. And then I got, so I had an auditorium full of people clapping for me. And then my dad took me out for pizza. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the fucking deal. This is what I want to do. I'm, I'm hooked. Nice. I got pizza and a bunch of people clapping for me. So I was like, I'm in. And And then I went went nuts after that. Is this, uh, you grew up uh, East Coast, right? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay. I'm a Jersey guy. So uh, I got it. I got about Monmouth County. Oh, okay. So you're north, right? Uh, No, I'm near the, I'm near the shore. Like not like, kind of like, it sounds stupid. Nobody from Jersey says this, but South Central, New Jersey, kind of like near, uh, near like Red Bank. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Around, around there. So, what was the what was the scene like in Philly when you were when you were playing? Did you gig in Philly, or did you end up moving to LA before you started gigging? I did some gigs, but it it was really weird. Like there was like this imaginary dividing line in, especially in New Jersey. It seemed like all the bands in North Jersey, they were doing a lot. They were doing covers. But they were doing covers with a lot of original material. Like, I remember seeing magazines with bands like, you know, Riot, White Lion, or not White Lion, White Tiger, uh, Twisted Sister, like all bands up in New York and North Jersey area that I was like, wow, that's, you know, but it was very clicky. Like, there was like this weird line that went right through the middle of New Jersey. All the Southern bands stayed in the south and all the northern bands stayed in the north and it was like we won't come into your backyard (laughs) don't come into our backyard and it was like all right and it was unfortunate because the southern new jersey scene was all covers right so it, it was really unusual to see any of the bands actually do an original and then once it, once the bands like the rock rock bands like the Cinderellas and you know, once they started doing originals, it became less places for them to play. Yeah. So that's kind of when I started getting into it. And at that point, um, it was like we would play a place called the Galaxy. In yeah, the Galaxy in New Jersey, and the Empire Rock Room in Philly. And then wait two weeks and then go back to the galaxy 
and then back to the Empire right, right. You just had those two places. And it was like, you know, all the bands that they were playing on Philadelphia radio, original bands, were bands like um, the Hooters. Okay. Uh, there was another guy called Robert Hazard and Heroes. There was another band called Baru Review, which were not rock. I didn't really consider them rock. Right, right. They were rock, but in their own almost kind of new wavy way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. It, we, I'm like, wow, man, there's fucking nowhere to play here. And a buddy of mine had been out in California and he came back and he was like, dude, there's so many clubs. Everybody's playing originals. There's chicks and dudes walking around with palm tree hair. And <laughs> it, it, like every club is original music. And I said, all right. So my wife and I, at the time, we, we went out to California for, you know, our third or fourth anniversary. And I came back and I was like, yeah, I'm going there. Right. Right. And, you know, I moved to, I moved to, it took me about a year saving up money and selling off my shit. And I bought a van with a U-Haul trailer and I, you know, packed up and I headed West. And then oddly enough, um, I don't think it was fucking six months. I was in California. Cinderella was playing at a place called the Empire Rock Room. And this guy, Lance Quinn and o Obi, uh, uh, fuck, I can't remember o Obi's last name. He was produced, they were producing John Bon Jovi's record. And they took John into the Empire Rock Room and they watched Cinderella play. And John's like, these fucking guys are great. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so they got signed. And then they signed every original rock band in, in Philadelphia. Right and after you leave. <laughs> Brittany fought. Yeah, and I'm sitting in California like, fuck. But, it, it, you know, it, it, this, it, we'll, we'll, I'm getting off track here. We'll, we'll touch on this later. But I wrote a book and it's called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. And if you're familiar with the term. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote Horseshoes and Hand Grenades with a buddy of mine, Paul Miles. And it basically tells my entire story from front to back. And it's because I'm the king of being at the right place at the wrong, the wrong time, time. Yep. my entire life. Yep. I think that's <laughs> the East Coast saying, man, horseshoes and hand grenades. I remember my dad saying that to me all the time. You know, it's only good in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? <laughs> and that's what I, I said. It, I said to my dad as a joke when I did my acoustic record, I was kidding around because half of the record was new. And half of it, I just wanted to go back and relook at some of my stuff and do an acoustic uh, acoustic versions of these songs. And I was telling my dad, I go, yeah, I'm going to relook at some of these songs. I really don't feel like they got a fair shake. So I'm going to redo them again, but like an acoustic version. And he goes, what are you going to call the record? And I was joking. I said, oh, maybe I'll call it John Karabi's Almost Greatest Hits. <laughs> And then he went, or you could just call it horseshoes and hand grenades. Crazy. And I went, what the, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades, you don't got to be on the money. You just got to be close. And I went, oh. so I wrote it down and I said, someday I'm going to do either a, 
like once once I get all my masters back, I'm gonna do one album of the songs that I felt should have been given a little more love. And I'm just gonna call it either, you know, horseshoes and hand grenades, or I'm gonna write a book and call it horseshoes and hand grenades. So I did the book. And the book's coming out when? April, I believe it's 12th of 2022. It's already done. Awesome. I already the audio book. Now we're just getting photos and that kind of shit together for it. And, um, you know, call it a day. That's, uh, that's definitely a difficult process. I mean, writing a book is not an easy thing to do. Um, you want to give the listeners an idea of how long it took you to do that and, and what it was like trying to put a book together? It was probably, well, I got to say most of 2020 um, and actually right into 2021. So it's been about a year in the making. Um, I literally just flew out like two weeks ago. I was in California and I spent nine days out there and I read the entire book for an audio book. Um, so, I mean, it's still like the, when I say it's done, I'm talking about the editing process. Right. All, now they're ready to go to print with the book. There's a couple more photos that we're getting together and, um, you know, putting that in there. And then at some point I need to, I'll probably need to do a cover photo or some sort of a something on the cover, but, um, it's a done deal. Like they're, they're, they may even be printing it as I speak. So that's awesome. Yeah. It took about a year and a half. Yeah. It's something good out of the pandemic. So that's, that's good. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've interviewed, you know, New York times bestseller authors and stuff. And it's just crazy when you have an understanding. I'm not, I, I'm, I don't, I've never written a book before. I'm a musician, but it's really interesting to hear how hard it is to do or like all the hours you put in. And for you telling your story, it's remembering all the stories, you know, making sure the memories there for those stories, where how you want to put them in order. I mean, it's, it's had to have been a, a big process. Uh, well, and this guy that I wrote it with, Paul Miles, he's got a he's got a website called Chronological Crew, and he's actually written a couple of books on his own. Okay, and he was actually involved. Uh, to what degree I don't know, but he was actually helpful with the dirt the book and the movie yeah yeah and he was the one that talked me into the book i did some shows in uh australia in 2019 and we were just kind of sitting around like this and and we were telling stories and, and he was laughing he goes crap you got to do a book he goes you know it's weird like you've got chapters in the dirt you've you were in the movie and he goes you know what people know about you? Zero. Like you're like, you're like this mysterious little enigma that nobody really knows much about. Um, my biggest concern was that it wasn't, I didn't have the typical behind the scenes VH1 story to tell. So I felt like, oh, well, maybe it'll be boring, whatever. But Paul was very uh, obviously knowledgeable of my time in Motley. And so the way we did it, 
he literally, once I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. He would call me for, he lives in Australia. Oh, wow. He would call me Saturday morning, his time, which was Friday evening, my time. Right. He'd be having tea. I'd be having a Jameson. And then he would put together an entire list of questions. Oh, wow. And he would ask me things. And then I would, then I would start rolling and telling stories. And he recorded everything. And then we would talk again a week later and he would have a whole new list of things together and different things that he saw online. And he would ask me about it. And we did this whole thing. And then we, then, so he typed everything out kind of like a, a book form. And then he sent it to me and then I read it and I took shit out and I added more and then I corrected things and changed the dates or whatever. And then I got it. And then I send it back and then he'd read it and change it again. And then he, and we did this like five or six times where, you know, and then we finally, we finally got it to where we're like, okay, I think this, uh, this feels good. It feels smooth. You know, it's, it's got a good thing. I sent it to my manager. He read it. He was like, fuck this. This is awesome. It's great. Nice. Okay. And then we sent it out. And we got a we got a book deal with it. Um, I mean, I really have to give more of the credit to Paul. Like he was aware of how to do a book, and he knew what questions to ask. Um, and it, but it's funny, like even like today, I was telling a story to my wife, and I like she goes, "Is that story in the book?" And I go, "Uh." Uh-uh. She goes, man, you're going to have to do a volume two. Like, <laughs> there's so much bullshit and craziness, whatever. But, um, you know, I don't know if I'd ever want to do it again. Right. Maybe, I think my next book I'm going to do will be a coloring book. There you much go. E- much yeah, easier. Much, yeah. <laughs> Stay in the lines. <laughs> yeah. Here's a ball. <laughs> whatever way you want. That's amazing. Hey, I want to ask you this question because I'm curious about this. Um do you remember the moment when you felt like you had a really a real shot of being a signed recording artist and and how long did it take you to like to make that happen like did you like and, and what i mean by that is is like you know how you, everybody plays in bands you had a ton of friends that plays in band bands and they make and they don't make it and whatnot when was that moment for you where you were like i really think i can do this when did you have that moment do you remember I got to be honest with you, like I had gone to California and I don't feel like, I, I okay, so there were things, there, there were things, and I talk about this in the book, there was a time when if, just prior to the scream, I was in a band called Angora. Uh, that was the band that we one we one by one moved out from Philadelphia to uh, L.A. Right. And in that band, I had Gene Simmons said to me, he 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 was the one that looked. He goes, John Karabi. <laughs> you're going to be a star. And he goes, remember this day. 
Gene Simmons said, you're going to be a star. Of course, in third person, right? <laughs> it, yes. And so I was like, you know, so I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a huge compliment. You know what I mean? But it was funny because for every person like Pete Angelus, I don't know if you're familiar with Pete. Oh yeah, absolutely. Van Halen, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was very, he was very huge influence on the Van Halen stuff. And then he actually went on to manage the Black Crows uh, in the beginning of their career. Um, and he said the same thing. He goes, you, you got it. The rest of your guys, not so much. I wouldn't leave the band though. I refused to leave the band. I, I felt like I had this, uh, I guess, guilt or whatever, where it was like, I, I was the reason why everybody moved out from Philadelphia to, to uh, California. So I was like, I can't fucking leave this band, put a new band together. Can't do it. But it was funny for each guy like Pete Angelis or Steve Vai or Gene Simmons that said, you're going to be a star. We would, we would go into a record label and we would get all this interest, you know, the entry level A&R guy would then turn us on to the next A&R guy. Then he would turn us on to the next A&R guy. And then, but the guy, but the guy at the top, the guy that really mattered every time went, no, nah, I'm just not, just not saying it. Wow. So like I would get these positives but then I would get bitch slapped again at the end. You right. know what I mean? And right. it was like, and honestly, it wasn't until it was a fluke, like the scream uh, came together because the guys in my band, everybody in Angora was getting a little bit too caught up in the trappings of LA. Right. And I got tired of fucking babysitting everybody. I got tired of people telling me they didn't have money, their share of the rehearsal room rent, but they definitely had enough money to go buy Coke or fucking weed. Do you know what I mean? And oh, I was yeah. like, you, you know what I mean? And I just said, you know what? Fuck this. And I quit. And it was shortly after that, that my manager who's still with me to this day, uh, John Greenberg, he said, hey, you know, the guys from Racer X are looking for a singer. So I, okay, great. And I went down, I met with them. We wrote one song together. Um, we wound up not using it on the record. It was called Hard Times. And um, then Scott Travis obviously got the Judas Priest gig. Right. And uh, Walt. But we had, we, we, you know, that was all in the beginning. We got Walt. We sat down and we we probably worked up about maybe five songs, six songs. And our manager decided to do, let's do some showcases. And I'm like, well, okay, well, we're not really ready yet. Like, we don't even have an album's worth of material. Right. Don't worry. About it. And he literally, uh, we did, we did all these, you know, uh, at, at, at like SIR in, uh, no, like Northwood, yeah, Hollywood. We went up doing like all these showcases for these record labels, and he got like this little bidding thing where everybody was like, "Oh, Racer X, you know, Angor, like, yeah, yeah, yeah." Well, and they came down, and we went from doing one showcase, uh, 
we were supposed to do one showcase. We wound up doing like nine showcases in like wow. five days or six days. And when we were all done, um, we were kind of freaking out. We're like, we, we literally got offered like three record deals. Wow. That's and I was off six songs, right? We, I don't even think we played six songs at the showcase. We did like four songs. Wow. Like, okay, well that, that we, we, I, I, you know, it's funny up to that point, those four guys, Walt, John, Bruce, and myself, we had not done a gig. We hadn't done a gig. Wow. Just playing, just, just writing well, basically. Yeah. We wound up going in, signed to Hollywood records and they said, okay, go write. Finish the rest of the record. Give us an entire record of like those four songs and this will be a slam dunk. And that's what we did. We just went into a rehearsal room in Van Nuys and went there six days a week. And we all had day jobs, just working and then go right to rehearsal. And we worked till 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning and then went home and shit, shower, shave, start over and repeat. You know what I mean? Right. And it was, and we did it. I, you know, but it wasn't until even with the screen thing, we signed a record deal. And because of all the bitch slappings that I had up to that point, I just kind of said, yeah, I'm not counting on anything until this record is done. And they tell us it's out. Right. <laughs> you know right. Like, because there's always that thing. I mean, how many times have you heard of a band that they recorded a record and a video and then the entire project gets shelved? Oh, yeah. Somebody gets fired. Some the A&R guy gets fired. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, well, and, and it was funny because when I left the screen, that's exactly what happened to the screen with the new singer that they got. They finished an album. They did a video. And then all of a sudden Hollywood went, yeah, you know what? I'm not I'm not feeling it. Wow. And they just put the record on a shelf somewhere. That's insane to work that hard I, to get that close. And then yeah. unbelievable. Now but it was, I, I, I did not until that record came out and they were like, okay, you guys are going on tour. I'm like, okay, this is happening. I've arrived. I'm not, I, I was literally not going to celebrate until it was in concrete that this was actually happening. And that, and that's what, is that 90? What year is that? 90. Yeah. Right. And I was late bloomer too, because I don't think I got, I didn't get a record deal until I was 30. Okay. You know, and I, you, that was the other thing you irritate me. I'd see things like, you know, Eddie Van Halen was 18 or 19 years old on the first Van Halen record. I'm like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? Robert Plant was, you know, 19 years old when he sang on the first Zeppelin record. Or you, I hear like Paul Rogers when he sang All Right Now was literally 17 turning 18 years old. I can't I'm, even fathom that one. Yeah, it, um, it's it's crazy. Like, I listen to that voice and I go, that's a man singing. Yeah, it's not a 17-year-old. <laughs> it's a 17-year-old boy. And it's I'm, I'm like, dude, that kid's balls dropped when he was like four. 
get to have a voice like that. That's oh, insane. It's totally insane. Totally insane. So, so you do scream and then you, you get a call. I, I love how you ended up basically getting the Motley thing. I, I had heard that you basically thanked them because Nikki six was saying how he really dug the scream. And yeah. then you called to basically say, Hey, thank you. And then those, those guys called you back. Right. That's how it happened essentially. Right. Pretty much. And it was so weird because, you know, like on, when you're on tour, you do legs, right. You know, so you're out for like four weeks or five weeks and then you go home for a minute and then you go back out again with another band or whatever. And we were on tour, um, and we were coming home. Our last show on that leg of the tour was at a place called the Marquee Club in Orange County, California. And, and it was weird. Like, on the next to the last show, this fan just came up. And I can't remember the name of the magazine, but Nikki was on the cover. And he's like, dude, you know, Nikki Six is talking about your band in this magazine. And he really loves your band. So I just, I'm like, Oh, cool. He's like, here, I brought this for you. So I just tossed it in. I went into the gig. We did our gig. We came out. We're on the way back now to California. And, uh, you know, we're sitting around, we're drinking our beer, smoking our weed, whatever. And we broke the magazine out. We are reading this thing and, you know, he had done this whole interview and then he just went on this tangent at the end. The guy goes, Hey, well, you know, what are you listening to nowadays, you know, when you're at home? And he went on this tangent about how he loved the screen. I have no idea. I got home, got into my apartment, crashed, got up the next morning. I got to go do a gig. I took a shower. I'm walking out the door. Honestly, it was it was like an afterthought. Oh, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to call Motley's management and just leave a message for Nikki and just say, thank you for the plug. Right. And if I can be so bold, like I, I was honestly thinking I'll thank them for the plug and maybe in some weird freak way, they'll get the message and maybe our band can go on tour with their band in the future. Right. So I called. Hey, man, this is John Carabin from The Scream, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, Nikki did this article, you know, and I just wanted to call him and say thank you for the plug. Uh, and the girl's like, give me your number. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, right, here it right. is. <laughs> and I swear to God, I hung the phone up, walked away from the phone, grabbed my guitar in my bag, walked out the door, and I was putting it in my car when my wife yelled, hey, come back in, take this call. So I walked back in, and sure shit, it's Tommy and Nikki. Wow. And they're like, hey, dude, what's up? You know, blah, blah. And we chit-chatted for maybe 30 seconds, a minute, and they went, hey, dude, Here's the deal. Uh, Vince is out. And I'm like, uh, what? You know what I mean? Like, Because it's not knowledge yet. It's not, no. Not knowledge yet, right. No. And they're like, Vince is out. Um, 
we'd love for you to come down. It, I think this was like a Friday. We'd love for you to come down on Monday and jam with us. So, okay. And I literally went in Monday. I sang five or six songs at which side note asterisk they didn't finish one song <laughs> we didn't finish one song wow like they would just stop playing and then i'm like oh i'm fucking this is sucking you know what i mean here we go here comes the bitch slap but were you feeling that though when you were when you were singing with them that that monday were you feeling like you were singing great or or you feeling like uh or i was just singing okay to with you another side note i didn't really know like i i knew the songs that motley had on mtv okay good i knew primal scream girls 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 looks like yeah. stuff like that right but i i you know i wasn't a huge fan didn't know a lot about them um when I started singing, they're like, hey, what do you want to do? I go, um, oh, you guys did Helder Skelter. Let's do Helder Skelter. So I literally did the three cover songs. We did Helder Skelter. And, you know, that part, yeah. you know, I hit that note and Tommy stopped playing. Oh, wow. And I was like, okay. Uh, am I flat? Like, right, I'm, right. am I ahead of the beat? Like, I, what the, f I don't know. Then we did Jailhouse Rock. You know, band kicks in, I start singing, they stop again. Then we did Smoking in the Boys Room. And, you know, one chorus in, stop. And then I did a couple of their songs like Live Wire and, you know, Shout. And then I think Don't Go Away Mad, Just Go Away, whatever, something from Feel Good. And uh, they were like laughing. And I'm, I was feeling really uncomfortable. But then they said, hey, man, um, what are you doing tomorrow? Can you come back? And I was like, uh, yeah, 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 sure same thing i went back the next day same thing happened and it was weird we started jamming we actually started working on what became hammered that rip that was a riff that i had had from angora days oh wow so that was like the first song we we probably that day we jamming they they were freaking out that i could play guitar so we set up a rig and we started jamming and we pretty much, I would say we probably had about 70, 80% of that song written that night. Like not the lyrics, but I was scatting a melody and, you know, and then they literally walked out of the room, came back in and said, Oh dude, welcome to the crew. And I was like, <laughs> like, I was like, uh, okay, this wasn't, really the plan you know and, and and it was just weird they're like but you can't tell anybody yet wow and i just had to okay 
you know, but then it was weird. Like I couldn't tell anybody, but at the same time I had to, you know, I had a tour book with the scream to go to Europe with Ellie guns and love hate. And I had to cancel that. You but know you what I mean? You couldn't say why though. Right. I couldn't really get into details. So I just let my manager handle all that. You know what I mean? Um, I'm like, I, I, okay, here's, here's the left. They tell me I can't say anything, but they also said, I need to be here every day to start writing this next record. And, you know, so I got to cancel the tour. How do I cancel the tour without telling anybody anything? Right. You know, right. so whatever, it was just, uh, I, I, I don't know. It was, I think they told everybody I had a gerbil lodged in my ass or something. I'm, I'm not real sure, but, <laughs> but, but um, it was, you know, it, it was crazy. Didn't see it coming. Yeah. I mean, super surreal when you think about it. I mean, to me, that record you guys wrote together is so underrated, still holds up today, in my opinion. Um, the musical landscape was so weird at that time. You know what I mean? I, I was playing in bands at that time, and it just seemed like there was this really weird divide where there's a lot of different styles of music going on. Grunge was hitting really hard. Um, I feel like some bands just got overlooked and just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Like King's X is a perfect example of a band that I just feel like my God, you know, or, or John Bush when he sang with Anthrax is another guy, John Bush, amazing voice. Um, my question to you, and this is the only crude question I'm going to ask you is what was the next batch of songs like that you were writing after that record? And what was the confidence level like with the band? The second record was miserable. Okay. Because of the shell shock that everybody had been through. I can't really say that I was all that shell shocked because I had never experienced the kind of success that they had prior to me being in the band. Sure. So, you know, they're like, Oh, the record went gold. Awesome. They're right. like, no, not awesome. You know what I mean? Like every record we've done is gone multi-platinum. Like gold is not acceptable. And, uh, you know, and it was just, it was, you know, so I think at that point, and I've said it before, I'm not saying anything new. Like, I think at that point, you know, there, there, there was mistakes from the time that I joined the band all the way to the end when I left. I, I don't even feel like, you know, it, it was ludicrous. It, here's the first mistake. It was ludicrous of Motley to think that they could accept a $40 million upgrade on their record deal. And then six months later, tell the record label that just paid them $40 million for these four guys. Oh, by the way, this guy's gone. We got this guy now. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, so I, I was, I was on shit footing right out of the gate. Um, you know, and then, like you said, the musical climate was weird. Um, they, in some ways, were not open to, I, 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 and I, again, I talked about this in the book. One of the things that I wanted to do was when we finished the record, I did not want to go out and play big arenas. What I wanted them to do, if you remember, if, if you remember the old kickstart my heart video. Yeah. 
when they pull up in front of the whiskey and they yep. film at the whiskey, I go, let's do that. Like, you guys don't need the money. Like, get the record label to pay for a bus for like three weeks. And let's just hit key cities around the country. Like, you know, New York, Dallas, Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, or Tampa, whatever. Key cities around the country, maybe 10 or 15 of them, 20 of them. Walk into a radio station in the morning and go, hey, guys, we're here. We're playing tonight at CBGB's in New York. We're playing tonight at the basement in Dallas. We're just surprise show, first come, first serve, be there, see ya. Do an interview, but film it all and create the excitement that all those, you know, and because that's what I was like, all those bands like the Sound Gardens and the Pearl Jams, they were the antithesis of everything that Motley was doing. Right. And I was trying to explain to them that nobody really got was a let's create the visual that people are still dying to come and see us. But at the same time, you're giving all of these people across the country a free show and a free possible the possibility to see Motley Crue in a fucking club up close and personal. It's a win-win. Which hasn't happened in probably a decade, right? That was probably the last well, time they were doing that. Well, I don't even know. If, I, don't, I don't know. But it was funny when I did it, when I said it to them, I, I don't know if it was Tommy or Nikki or one of the guys, they were like, you know, you don't learn how to ride a horse by reading a book. <laughs> you, get on, you, you get on the horse and you just ride. And I'm like, I'm not afraid to ride. I'm just right. saying... This isn't, this isn't fucking feel good dates. Right. Five years have gone by. Nirvana is fully entrenched. Soundgarden is right. like all these bands are like, you know, Rage Against the Machine was just starting to come up. Pantera. Like, I mean, you had White Zombie. Not, you had so much stuff that was different from, I mean, did, did they not see it? Do you think like in that? time period because you guys are just really writing like were they not aware of how much the landscape was changing in that sense or did they just feel like well we're just motley crew and people are gonna accept us as motley crew and we're I, still gonna be I, there you know listen I, I think at the end of the day that when you have the kind of success that they had i just felt like that they were they were at a point where they felt like they couldn't do anything wrong right right and they were sadly mistaken. Yeah, a lot of those bands were too, unfortunately. I mean, it was yeah. just, it was a big seismic change. You know what I mean? And I, Listen, I, I remember, I remember when I was in the screen, I remember I was in, uh, I was in London with the screen doing a show and we saw Nirvana at a little club. They did an eight o'clock and a 10 o'clock show or some shit. And I remember seeing them and going, my bass player, Juan Alderetti, he was like, dude, shit's about to get real. Yeah. This band is making a fucking statement right now. 
and England was eating those guys up. They were, and they put on a great show. And it was, it was, uh, you know, so I just think Motley was like, you know, I mean, fuck, feel good. It just sold what, 5 million or something like that. And it was like, I think globally, I think they sold like 16 million records of that thing. Wow. And then, and then they do Decade of Decadence with Primal Scream on it, and they go tour that. They played to something like 2 million or 3 million people around the world, scaled down tour, and they sold like another 5 million records. So I just felt like they mentally, they were, they were like, in their minds, they were saying, oh, we're adding a stronger fourth. We've already done this. Imagine what we can do with this guy. And it was like, eh, no, you know what I mean? Music's different. It was too long. And I just wanted them to scale things back a little bit. Like, look at what's happening around us. Yeah. It's, it's not about pyro and chicks and all this shit. You got, I mean, even when we were doing the record, we went and saw Neil Young and Pearl Jam together. And Eddie Vedder, was, they, there was no pyro. It was just amps they just played and eddie just dazzled everybody with his intelligence yeah uh, his political viewpoints and i'm like this isn't the world that you guys came from so it was just it was weird yeah weird weird timing yeah and it's it's interesting too because i felt like the record i felt like the record really kind of could have found its way in that time period too you know what i mean like i felt like it was it was raw but it was it was really good there's a lot of just dynamics to it i mean it, it, it felt it felt like it really would have worked in that time i remember my my drummer he he bought it the week it came out and i was like oh molly crew blah blah, blah. And he's like no you got to hear this new singer you got to hear this you got to hear molly crew man you're gonna freak out and i listened to it and i was like holy shit like you're not lying like it's it, it, and that was when we were big into Pantera then, Corrosion of Conformity, White Zombie, all those bands. But it was like we were into that record too. You know what I mean? I just the, – the, the, the stripped-down version, you're right, man. It would have worked. It really would have worked. It's, but it, it, it was multiple things. A, what is the one thing – even the fans that like the record, the one thing that they say is this record would have been so much bigger if it was under a different Different band name. name, yep. We, we wanted to. We got shot down by the record label who had just paid them $40 million. Right. We got down by the agent. We got shot down by the lawyers and the managers and everybody that had their hands out and got their pieces of the pie. Sure. Okay. Um, so there was that. There was the musical climate. Um, there was also uh, the fact that everybody at our record label got fired. Yeah, that's a huge one. Literally. 53 people. Wow. And, and then the band, you know, and when I say the band, I'm talking about 75% of the band because I had never met Vince prior to that. So I had nothing bad to say about the guy. Right. But made it a point to talk shit about him, which drew an imaginary line in the band. Yeah. And great made point. The choose between this side or that side. And then the other thing was, the entire time we were putting that record together, their thing was, ah, uh, you know what? 
We don't have to have the pyro. We don't have to have the fucking leather pants. We don't have to have this. Now we can show people that we can play. They just wanted people to take them as players, as, as listen to the songs. So much so that if you really look at the album cover, it's just black with the words Motley Crue across the front. And then when you flip it over on the backside, there's a tiny little picture of the band and that says, listen, on the back of the record. They were so adamant about being anti what they had been in that degree, right. like visually, that that also alienated everybody that had seen the band a million times prior to that. There was nothing about Motley Crue that was Motley Crue. Nothing. That's and a great, great point. You know what I mean? So it's like you take all those things and you mix it in with the fact that everything from the 80s was passe. Yeah. It was a losing cause to begin with. Now, when the second record came along, they fired their manager, fired their and fired everybody because it was everybody else's fault. Wow. And then they went in and decided, you know what? We don't even need Bob Rock. Costs too much money. We're going to fucking do this ourselves. Oh, wow. We, we can do this. And then, but then everybody started looking at Pantera, Nine Inch Nails. Yep. It was like, you know, I just didn't, I had no idea of what direction that record was going. I, I, I still couldn't figure it out. You know what I mean? And they, it was just a few people that were at the helm that were seeing their careers flash before their eyes and they got panicked. And instead of going back to doing what they do, they just started looking at what was selling and how do we incorporate th that into what we're doing? And that's <laughs> such a mistake because... It's fear. It's a fear. You, that Generation Swine, what became Generation Swine, was completely written out of fear. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know what the funny thing is, too, is like people like their bands. You know what I mean? They like, they like knowing what their band sounds like. And obviously, you know, you can branch out and stuff. Because like Zeppelin did an amazing job of that. Sabbath did an amazing job of that. Queen did also. But it's like if you're trying to be the next somebody and not being true to yourself... People are going to pick up on that, unfortunately. And and speaking of that, let's can we talk a little bit about you and what you got going on right now? Because I'm really excited for you doing what you're doing now. Um, and I wanted to ask you just a couple questions about the new day and age of recording, you know, on your own, the digital age, you know, Spotify, all that stuff. Um, you're doing you're doing stuff in your home studio for the most part. Is that correct now? Yeah. Yes. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, I totally can. Yeah, but it's, I'm like, um, you know what, COVID, thank you, COVID. I wrote the book, and then I was sitting here kind of kicking myself in the ass going, telling my wife, I said, man, you know what's weird? Like, I literally, if I would have been smart and taken Pro Tools seriously, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, 
this whole pandemic thing, I could have literally just been sitting in my room, writing music, recording it, editing, mixing, mastering, and just putting it on, even if I put it on johnkarabi.com and said, hey, pop in 99 cents or a dollar or whatever, $2, and you can have this song, you know what I mean? I, I would have been able to, like, it, it would have been a little easier to get through this last 18 months. And I no sooner said it, an ad came up on Instagram. Learn to use Pro Tools. <laughs> Horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I literally made the call. And due to COVID, they were, they were um, uh, doing, everything was on Zoom classes or whatever. Sure. So they said, yeah, man, thousand bucks, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, okay, great. So I literally went out and I bought this laptop that interface, all this stuff, keyboards, and um, got all the plugins I need. I sat and I did, I had one computer open with the Pro Tools on, and I had another computer open with the, the Zoom, Zoom class. class. <laughs> Talking, and I was taking notes, and I just sat down and I just started dicking around, and I'm still not, I still don't know what I'm doing. Sure. Like, not totally. Like, so I'll record, like yesterday I did a keyboard part. It took me like a day and a half because I'm doing MIDI. I don't play. So I'm like kind of fudging my way through the chords and I'm, um, I'm hearing that it's not an E that I'm hearing. It's like an E ninth or whatever. So I'm just figuring it out. And then I go, you, YouTube, what's an E ninth chord on a piano? Like, and, I'm like oh, <laughs> boom. and I'm punching shit in and I'm fixing it. And then I get it to a point, you know, and I'll send it to Marty. And then Marty's got all the parts there. And he goes, okay, this is a little out of time. He moves it. And then, and then he's like, well, that keyboard, I see what he's doing, but the keyboard sound blows. So I'm going to run it through my thing. And, you know, uh, so I, it, it's slow, but I'm figuring it out. Right. Um, and, but it, I'm, I'm now I'm like, oh, this is so great. Like, I can't believe like Casi Bella, if you've heard it. I have. Yes. I did. I did 80% of that song right here in this. And with this, with this thing, I'm like, that's insane to me. It's, cr it's crazy. Cause I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you with the technology, are you putting a sure mic in front of a tube amp or using plugins, you know, that was one of the questions I had. And it's like, you just answered it for me. And it's amazing because the tones on that song sound great. I mean, they sound believable. And I have to, so this is a, this is the Apollo twin that I bought. It's a universal audio and they have a thing called, um, like, I think it comes with it. The plugin for guitar is called 11. Mm -hmm. And, uh, marty's not a fan of that so we were talking and i said dude what do you use for your guitars and he goes oh, i use this thing called guitar rig pro six or some shit yeah okay so i i literally went online and i found it i paid for it and i downloaded it and uh it's night and day like the guitar tones are night and day. like 
And, and it's funny, I don't know if you've heard the song, like right after the first chorus, going into the second verse, and a little bit in the second verse, Brian, uh, Marty was laughing. He goes, man, it would be killer if we could get Brian May to play on this thing, or, you know, we could figure out what his tone was. And they, so, have, a, and they have a Brian May amplifier, yes. don't they? <laughs> and literally just, I literally plugged it in and I'm like, oh my God, there is, that's the tone. Yeah. It, it's not called Brian May. They call it One May. Right, because they can't probably call it Brian May, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, killer. So I figured out the harmonies and I did that little re-intro. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. And I was like, holy fuck, it sounds like Queen. Um, but it, I did that whole thing here, drums and everything. Like, I did the drums. Now then, Marty, like, I, I get the drums pretty good. He, he's He was kind of laughing at me he's like dude you're i don't know what you're doing with the drums but you're fucking nailing it but i do it ass backwards i don't use the quantizing thing i do the bass drum snare through the whole song then i go in and fix the bass drum and snare put them where they need to be right then i i hats and the crashes then i'll do the fills last kind of fix everything and then i start you know laying shit on top of it but um it, it, it's like it's it's a slow process but i'm figuring it out and as far as the other shit spotify like i i, I don't know marty's the one that he was the excuse me catalyst and he goes dude the buying record buying public the percentage of people that still buy records and still buy cds is so small yeah like it's it's all about streaming streaming is the new radio youtube is the new mtv yep and he goes amazon is the new tower records or uh, you know you you can either buy it online and get the hard copy or the download or both or you can go to my website and buy the download or both you know or the show come to the show and i'll have them there it, that's where I've sold all my records in the last 10 years. Right, right. You know, so, it, it's a great point. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, I, I had a, a, a younger artist on, and he started off his career by putting an EP out. And then what he noticed was, is that a lot of people, it started to fall off towards the end of the EP in terms of the analytics of how many people were listening, right? And it's the whole short attention span thing nowadays, really. Um so what he started doing was just releasing singles. And he noticed that when he released the singles, he was getting really good response compared to releasing the EP. And then so he'd release a single a month and it would just be like, hey, check out the new single, you know, save it on Spotify, blah, 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 blah. And my question to you was, is that the same type of thing you're thinking about doing, like releasing a single here, a single there? Or are you going to actually put out a whole entire record or are you going to put the singles out first and then say, hey, if you want this in a record, you have that availability. I'm, I'm probably going to do the singles, um, but it, it's, it's weird. I don't, you know, I have literally, I, I'm, I'm right now. I'm at, I'm at, I'm at about a month and a half with Cassie Bella and I'm still picking up, you know, well, now I'm seeing, I'm seeing like the playlist numbers are starting to go down. Okay. But the streams are still, I'm still doing like, you know, 1,000, 1,500 streams a day, which 
in Justin Timberlake's world is like, you know, he does that in 10 minutes. Sure, but, sure. You know, but it's still a steady streaming thing. Like, uh, I'm still getting, you know, still getting a thousand to fifteen hundred, two thousand streams a day. So can't, can't beat that. Gonna, now this song, I've already sang it. The next one that I'm sending Marty, um, I just, I just need him to mix it, master it, send it back to me, and then I'm gonna upload it. And now the the thing that it's funny, the PR guy was, I was talking with Doug, who yeah. you spoke. He was like, well, you know, when you did your last song, he suggested, he goes, now your next single, he goes, put the single out and then wait a week or two to do the video. Cause then that kind of re-energizes everybody again, like a week or two later. And it, you know, it'll spike it some more. And I'm like, you know, I, 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 don't, I I'm, I'm kind of guessing, you know what I mean? But I guess to a degree, that's how we used to do it before. We would go to radio first and then release the video would get, eventually get released on MTV. That's what happened with Man in the Moon. Man in the Moon was out for three or four weeks before the video even came out. And then, and then it re-energized it again. So he said, try it that way. Yeah, it's it's crazy. One of the things I see a lot of people doing nowadays is doing like 15 second clips of a video. And that's the way they kind of entice people into like, here comes the song. It's not there yet. It's going to come in a week or two. Here's another little 15 second clip of it. And then boom, you know, then they know the release date. Because the hard thing is, it's like, it's, you know, there's no MTV anymore. You know, the internet's amazing because you can do anything. But at the same time, anybody can do anything so it's like how do you find how to get to your audience consistently and say here's a new you know here's something new you know how do, how do new people find you you know what i mean it's it's it's, I'm, it's a slippery I'm slope it's it this is all like chinese arithmetic to me you know what i mean i'm like i don't get it you know but um and and in the boot you know not to sound weird but it's like i'm my own guy now um so I'm doing the, I'm recording the song. Now, all day today, I've been on the phone all day doing interviews. Now I'm going to go in and finish a couple of the parts that I want to do. I'll sit here, tweak, tweak the song for a couple of hours with headphones and then hopefully send it to Marty. And, you know, but it, it's weird. Like I'm trying to get the song done I'm trying to promote the song. Yep. And like now it's like, okay, I got the song. Marty's got it. He's mixing it. As soon as you get the mix, I need to get, get in and do the video. Like I did the last video, me and a buddy, Chris Romero, we filmed the whole video on two iPhones. Wow. And then buddy can edit the thing for us, put it together. Boom, 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 boom. Here's the lyrics, upload it. Here's the date it comes out. And I'm like, fuck, like I'm kind of doing everything myself. Which is you know always I mean? hard to do because you're wearing all the hats, right? And it's like the biggest thing you want to concentrate is on the music. But exactly. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, yeah. And, and now I'm like the other thing, um, I, I, I couldn't show you because it was dark outside, but it, it's like, you know, I, I'm now just starting now to get back to work. So I'm juggling between studio time here interview time 
oh, I got gigs. So now I'm getting all my strings, pulling my guitars out, stringing my strings, running through the set list. So what am I going to do? Okay, now, yeah, hey, can we do a video? I, you know, are you going to have time next week to do a video? You know what I mean? It's like, fuck, it's so much shit. I'm like trying to put all this together. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing too, though, is that it's what you're doing and what you love. Right. And that's the cool thing about it. No. Well, and part of it, I already have a lot of music recorded already. But I sat and I looked at everything and I, I led off with Cassie Bell, which is maybe some people would say it's a little out of my wheelhouse um, or not what they would have expected from me. And then I'm sitting looking at the other songs and I'm going, well, these are really great songs. I'm really excited for people to hear the other stuff that I have, too. But I'm like, I, I was dicking around and I, I wrote this new riff that's very kind of zeppelin meets old deep purple okay you know what so i go i'm gonna record this this is what i want to go next with so i'm i'm literally like no i'm gonna i'm gonna do this it's it's got a little more teeth to it a little more in your face i'm gonna this is the next one so it's my bad i could have released one of the other songs but I'm like, no, I, I, I want to do this one. I'm excited about this song. So I want to finish it, get it out. And then, and, then, and then I've probably got, like, if I did a song every two months, I've probably got another six or seven months worth of shit here that I could yeah. just done already, just shoot a video and go. And it, but, keep you, it keeps you current, man, because it's not like here I put the album out and then within a month or two, the album kind of loses its legs. It's like, here's another here's another song. Here's another song. It's oh well, Karabi's got another tune out. Oh, that's really cool. That sounded different from this one, but it still sounds like him. I mean, that's amazing. I want to ask you one more question because I know you got to go. I know you got some more interviews and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, for the younger listeners out there, I have, I have a definitely a younger audience also, a lot of inspiring musicians. Um, what do you think is missing from the musical landscape in this modern day and age? And what advice would you give to a younger aspiring artist? Um, I think, you know, all this stuff amazes me, like the computer, the sounds that I can get out of this laptop that I just did my last song with. But one of the things that I've noticed about, like I just met a kid at one of my shows and we were talking about recording and he was talking to me about um, things like editing and auto-tune and like how, I guess there's a way where you can do a vocal and then you can run it through auto-tune or you can put it on auto-tune as you're singing it and it'll pop the vocal where it needs to be. And he was like, you use auto-tune, don't you? And I go, no, no. Right, you are old school, man. You get the track well, right. Even Cassie Bella, like I, I said, and it's funny, I was just telling somebody today, like even this new song, it takes me longer because I still don't know how to cut that part, cut that part, pull that part out and move these two parts together. Sure. I don't have that yet. So like this new song that I'm doing, it, it was almost seven minutes long. 
And the more I listened to it, I went, you know what? That verse, second verse, doesn't need to be that length. It, it needs to be half the length. And so I, I erased everything. And I kept the drums. I, I, cause it was a mini drum track. I'm like, Oh, right here. I can just take that and delete it. And then I can just drag this part over and I don't have to crossfade anything or do any of that bullshit. Right. Right. That and it's done. So I can, I can figure the editing there, but then what I had to do is I had to go in and replay the guitars from top to bottom in one take. So you can line it up. <laughs> I had a punch in yet. And, and then I had to double the guitar and I had to do it in one take. If it fucked it up, I erased it and I started at the beginning again. Same with Cassie Bella. Now, when I did that guitar solo, which I'm really super proud of my guitar solo in that song, because it's the first time I've ever played a guitar solo on a record that I've recorded. Nice. I didn't know that. Uh, well, so, but it was funny because I'm sitting there and I just basically, I knew, I figured out, I went online. I'm like, okay, how do I loop this part to just keep it playing over and over and over again? So I figured out how to do that. And then what I did is I literally sat there and figured out how do I want to come into this solo? Okay, I'm going to do it like this. All right, now the middle part, where do I want to go? You know, and it just, I kept, kept fucking up. But I had the beginning. All right, got that. All right, now where am I going? Okay, here. Nope. Okay, start at the beginning. Play. And I literally sat here for probably six hours, seven hours, figuring out what I was going to do. But not only figuring it out, what I was going to do was figuring it out and then playing it in one take. Amazing. Because I didn't know how to punch in. Punch in, right, right. You know? And then it's, it's even harder. Like, I'm like, I don't have a foot pedal. So I have to literally go, boom. Yep. You know, yep. And, and <laughs> so yep. I'm like, and I'm just going to figure out how to play. So the thing that I would say to a lot of these young kids is don't rely on the technology that much. I, I know it's a little ass backwards the way that I'm doing it. It's, it's so much easier to just cut, pull that part out. Or, you know, you can comp guitar solos. But again, I'm a bit old school. I just figured out what I wanted to play and I just played it. And if I fucked up, I went back and started over again. And you have no, you don't have the clock tip, ticking on like there's 125 bucks an hour. Or there's another 125 bucks an hour. I mean, everything, you know, you can have that peace of mind of going, all right, I fucked it up. Who cares? Let's start again. I mean. Yeah. And I just did it till I thought it was right. And then I had to, but I had to do the same thing with all the harmonies. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. So that guitar solo in itself, it probably took me with all the harmonies and then playing it in one take and all that shit. I had to figure it out. Like it took me six or seven hours, but I did it. I got right. it done. done. Um, you know, and I'm figuring shit out as I go, but the auto tune thing, you know, have my vocals been pitch corrected? Probably, yes. You know, at the end, I'm not singing into the auto tune and letting the machine fix me. And you know what I mean? I'm yeah. singing five, six, seven times, comping the vocals just like we all did. Right. Taking the best shit. And then once it's all set, 
you know, I I do it. Uh, what is it? Compress the track or consolidate the track? Consolidate the track. And honestly, like I I really feel like there there's it's better for me to get it almost as you know like it. I'm okay with some flaws. Like if I just get it cool and it's got a cool vibe, I'm good with that. Yeah. Do you know, I, I'd really rather not use auto tune or the cut and paste thing, like, you know, or the courses. I, I sing all the courses, like the first one, the second one, and the, 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 the third one. There, it's not like sing one and then just paste it in there. I'm singing all of them. Which is great because, I mean, a lot of the music, I mean, you, I think, listen to a lot of the same music. It's like, that's how they did it. You know what I mean? Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, the tape was literally falling in their hands when it came to mixing it. That's, you know, how they, I mean, but it was all, you know, it, that's what you did. You know what I mean? Like, it, it gives it that vibe, right? I mean, there's plenty of little mess ups on Van Halen records, but that's what makes those Van Halen records special and gives it that vibe. And that's super important, man. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I just came from the school where it's like, if you were singing something, the producer just hit the button and said, grab, you're a little flat on the last note, that last. Yep. Wake it up, buddy. Okay, cool. And you just, you just sang it over and over and over again until you got it right. Yep. And that's, that's kind of how I'm doing it here. So it takes me a little time. It takes me longer than, you know, again, Marty. Marty, Marty would have had this song done out and already in a movie soundtrack, but I'm, I'm still working on the keyboard part. You know what I mean? Whatever. Right. But you know what? You're working on it. You're enjoying it. And, and guess what? Every time you work on another song, that window is going to get shorter on how long it takes you to do something, which is nice too. You're just going to get more experience, man. You know, that's the most important thing. John, I can't thank you enough for being on my show today. I really enjoyed talking to you. I mean, you were so gracious with your time. Is there anything you want to add or promote before I let you go? Just, you know what? Just go check out Cassie Bella. Um, it's in all the digital downloads and streaming sites. And please spread the word. You know what I mean? Like, it's a new world, new way of doing things. I need all the help I can get. I appreciate that, man, very much. Thanks for your time, John. Have a great week, man. Be safe. Awesome. You too, buddy. Thank you. Take care. John was really gracious enough to give Mixtapes a, uh, a copy of Casi Bella, which is his new single that he just put out a little bit ago. Um, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So thanks again for supporting the show. Um, you can always support the show by donating to us over on anchor.fm and just look up Mixtapes. You know, writing a review makes a huge difference for us. Uh, Five-star ranking, any of those things help us get great guests like John. And uh, we really appreciate the support. So thanks again for listening to the show. Thanks again to John Crabby for being so generous with this time. Stay safe out there, everybody. Talk to you soon.
you, brother.